giant robots smashing into other giant robots. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Giant Robots Smashing Into Other Giant Robots podcast. I'm Ben, and I'm here today with my buddy Nick. How's it going? Good. How are you doing? I'm good. So we had talked about covering some of the technical details of Space because I think you've made some interesting choices, and people seem to respond positively when we talk about technical things. Yeah, especially like after, I feel like last week's episode was really, uh, I don't want to say like touchy-feely, but we were really talking about emotional and psychological stuff, and mm-hmm. the response to that was really great, but I was looking forward to getting kind of nerdy today. Yeah, all right, well, let's let's get nerdy. We can do that. Sure. So you have two dependencies in MeSpace, if I remember correctly. Um, I think they came out last week. Three, three dependencies. Oh, has yeah. it gone up? Three. No, no, it hasn't gone up. There's two dependencies in Go. Okay. And that is the Postgres driver, which is in a, a GitHub repository. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Google's WebSocket driver, which is in like the Google XNet stuff for Go, which is like, it's like an official additional standard library type of thing. So it's like everybody sees it as sort of a standard library imp- implementation, but it's not shipped with Go. So mm-hmm. those those two Go packages are ones that I use. And then um, on the JavaScript side, there's an adapter that's by the WebRTC project that creates a uh, uniform interface in front of all of the browser-specific mm-hmm. uh, implementations because mm-hmm. WebRTC still hasn't really settled. So by using that adapter, I can just say, okay, yeah, give me a webcam, and it'll go to Firefox or Chrome and, and handle it appropriately. Gotcha. So you have a web application. Yeah. Uh, which means you are missing a router, authentication, cookies, things like that. Like you're, yeah. not, you're not using other people's code for any of that. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And I think uh, that's particularly terrifying uh, when you're coming from Ruby. And I did a lot of Ruby on Rails before coming into Go. And so the big difference, honestly, is that Go has this very modern, like, fresh start to an HTTP library. So in Ruby, everyone likes to make fun of the standard library, HTTP library, because the API is not that great. It doesn't have a lot of functionality. It's very basic. And everybody grabs a gem for HTTP stuff. And then we have like the rack gem, you know, that gives us a nice uh, layer on top. So Go's HTTP library, it brings in the equivalent of rack and the client is very nice. The API is really nice to work with. It has that first couple of methods that make common things easy and then it immediately drops you into like an expert mode to build your own request or or look at a response. And mm-hmm. so the HTTP library there, it's really like I'm starting with Rack, even though I don't have to get the equivalent of Rack. So I have this handler. Okay. And that even comes with a router. And it's not a great router because it just matches prefixes. So it doesn't do exact matching. So that means the order of your routes matter. And if you map something to slash, like root, it'll match everything, mm-hmm. not root. Gotcha. So I did have to do some extensions to the router. So I have I have my own router implementation that does parameter matching like if you have you know slash users slash id slash teams you know that id in the url is something that goes router doesn't support doing that but my router does it's a really simple regular expression because in my case i know the format of that id Mm -hmm. Um, so it's very easy to uh to write that in Hmm. yeah and then i mean from there like yeah you talked about you mentioned cookies Mm -hmm. i sign my own cookies so I have a blog post about that too, we can note. Uh-huh. Um, and I use HMAC for that. Mm-hmm. And so what I have is in the cookie is the user's UUID uh, along with 
a signature of that UUID using a secret that's in the app and using HMAC to uh, to sign it. This is a, that's a Postgres feature. Uh, yeah, I use Postgres for it, but HMAC is in everything. Ruby has an HMAC library. Mm-hmm. Go has an HMAC library. I could have done it with the Go library, but when it came down to the implementation, it was easier to just say, "Hey, Postgres, you know, select star from users limiting one." where the user's ID is this, and the HMAC signature of the user's ID is that, and it'll either return me a user or not. Mm. So to me, I don't actually see someone as like, oh, they had an ID, but their signature didn't match. I just see them as, you're not a a user. Even Mm. if their ID is correct, if their signature is wrong, it's just like, oh, you're not logged in. So it's a very easy, simple branch at the very base of my looking somebody up. Mm. So it cuts them off really fast. Interesting. Yeah. And HMAC is just a nice tool for signing stuff. With yeah, a, with it a does. It's um, it's designed to resist like buffer overflows on the data that's being sent in and timing attacks, and um, it is a hashing signature, so it's not an encryption. Mm-hmm. Um, so the users, you know, if you wanted to put some data in the signature, it wouldn't actually be exposed in any way. Even if somebody were able to get the key, they would only be able to forge the signature. Mm. Um, so it's, it's really nice, and I've used it in place of um, API keys, not on MeetSpace, but just in the past, because when you're using an API key, you're kind of saying, okay, anybody with this key can just, like, you know, do whatever. But if you're using it internally, like between your own systems, where the communication should be really, really heavily authorized, like mm-hmm. you don't want somebody else making API requests to you, this is, like, internal, mm-hmm. you can use HMAC because the two sites have a shared secret, and then the secret doesn't pass over the wire, just the signature. Mm-hmm. So you don't see the a- API key going by in an HTTP header. So even a man mm. in the middle, the best they can do is replay a request because they can't even make a new request because you're signing the payload of the request. Mm-hmm. So HMAC is, is really, really nice. And mm. I've used it in a bunch of places. And it's been around for a really long time. The libraries are all there. You're not rolling your own crypto. You know, nothing, nothing crazy there. Hmm. That's cool. So part of me thinks that it sounds nice to have a f- small application where you know all the, the pieces, then part of me thinks you're maybe a little crazy for not using somebody else's router or cookie signatures or things like that, because it's just a chance to introduce your own bugs and bring in your own maintenance burden. Yeah, yeah. With the with the cookie signatures, I think that that's, that's definitely a good argument. Hmm. And the counter-argument is simply how insanely small that implementation is. Like, I think... We're talking like it's done entirely at the query level, and we're talking like two query functions in the lookup for a user. Mm-hmm. So that's it, you know? And then and then an HTTP header set cookie, right? So that's just almost no code. Mm-hmm. So at that point, like, there is a cost to a dependency, which is that there could be bugs in that code. You don't understand that code, and it's probably a whole lot bigger than what your implementation would be, mm-hmm. and it's probably more volatile, too. And I mean, I guess you could check it out. You could vendor a specific version, never change it again, and hope that you never have to upgrade it for any reason, like your uh, language upgrades or something like that, mm-hmm. right? So in the cookie case, it's like the implementation was so small that I found it to be advantageous over a library. Mm-hmm. Now, in the router's case... This was interesting because, yeah, there are a bunch of really great Go routers out there. And if anybody was going to build a Go web application today, I would say pick up one of those routers. And I have picked up one and actually a couple of those routers for a couple different projects. Mm. And they work great. Um, And my router is probably worse than them in terms of performance. But the really interesting thing that I was able to do for MeetSpace was that I actually integrated the router together with my idea of how 
uh, requests should be bundled up and then functionality on requests as well. And so this was me taking my things that I like about Rails and -hmm. bringing them to Go. And so my router doesn't just match up a function with a path. It also is wrapping up Go's HTTP response writer and request object into one request object. That's my router's request object. And I did some object-oriented stuff with that object, object, object um, that uh, allows me to take the request and call methods like render on it. Hmm. So I say request render the name of a, a template with some template data. And it will automatically take care of taking the template, executing the template with the data in the being passed along, and then flushing it out on the response and doing the appropriate response code for it. Hmm. I also have a redirect. So this is the classic Rails like render or redirect Mm -hmm. type of thing. So I can also very easily do a redirect. And then I also have an error. And this is like a merger of the way Go loves passing errors around Mm -hmm. and the HTTP library and rendering and my alerting mechanism. So just by saying, like, in Go all the time, you're seeing if error equals do a thing, then do something with that error, right? Mm-hmm. In my case, do something with that error is request.error, and you pass the error. And that will simultaneously render out a uh, 500 for the user. Mm-hmm. It will log the error. It will email me the error, and I have a notification set up on that. So pretty much every device I own will start vibrating when mm-hmm. that happens. Mm-hmm. And it's also, like, going to halt that request execution. Um, I mean, you still have to you still have to return, but it's kind of like a final thing. It's like render, redirect, or error. Mm-hmm. So if I was using a framework, I'd sort of have to be gluing that all together anyways at some higher helper level for myself. Mm-hmm. But since I was like, hey, you know, this is how I want my application to act. This is the kind of the DSL or, you know, the API of what my web app does. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the day, the equivalent of my actions, like in a, a Rails controller, actually look a lot like a Rails controller. It's kind of like run some business logic-y function, look at the result. If it's good, then we're going to do a redirect or a render. If it's bad, then we're going to report an error. And then in Go, what I'll do is I can uh, attempt a typecast of the error. So I can say, oh, if this error was actually a specific kind that I want to handle, then I can like render this, oh, you know, you did a bad thing, here's some feedback on it sort of thing. It's Mm -hmm. not really a a crash. Mm -hmm. So with the router... Again, I didn't write a lot of code, but I certainly could have used something off the shelf. But by doing it myself, I was able to merge together all of these different parts to create this really nice API for myself. So Mm -hmm. my actions, where I'm spending most of my time, they read really nicely. Hmm. Was this an explicit decision up front? You were like, I'm going to try to kind of custom roll this, or did you just kind of end up pathfinding your way there? Um, Everything was, I I found my way there, Mm -hmm. yeah. I really don't like the idea of prefactoring, like refactoring before you actually do the thing, mm-hmm. you know? And I also like the idea of solving the problem that's in front of you and then going back and saying, okay, how could I do this better? Mm. And so at the beginning, I didn't have my own router. I had Go's routers. And then it was like, all right, you know, I'd really like to have the IDs in the params. Let's see how to do that. Okay, cool. All right. Now I'd really like to render templates out better because I've called this template rendering code a bunch of times. Well, Let's put it on the request. And then it was like, okay, I need error notifications. Well, clearly that should be something, like I'm going to call it in a bunch of these places, right? And I could call out a, uh, I found myself calling my error notification, calling my error log, and then calling a render of the 500 page. 
And it was always like that. And so mm-hmm. you see those three methods copied and you're like, all right, roll that up into a helper, mm-hmm. right? And then it was like, okay, well, that helper always takes the request as a parameter. So maybe it belongs on the request, mm-hmm. you know? And it was just a very natural, organic growth three-factor, growth three-factor phase. That thing you mentioned about Go errors, like checking the error, I'm very Go ignorant, but I've seen like snippets and it's like just this nest, this one example I'm going to call out, which is totally unfair, but it was like the nest of like, if error, then this, otherwise do that. It was it was a chain of constantly checking errors as it descended kind of like through these method calls. Yeah, that's, um. so that's, first of all, that's a Go anti-pattern. Um, mm-hmm. You should use the short circuiting pattern and Go linters will tell you not to do an if else. Mm-hmm. They'll tell you to do an if error handle return, and then not go in an else, just continue on. So it shouldn't nest. Okay. Because yep. you should always be returning back. You should be bubbling. Yep. So if you get yourself into a nested if else's, that's definitely an anti-pattern and go. But I will say that I had a very similar reaction, even if you're looking at the idiomatic solution, which is if error equals a thing, then you know abort. If error equals a thing, abort. If error equals... And you're like, oh my God, are we really going to do this? Mm-hmm. You know? And eventually, you know, you get used to it. But I still feel like this could be optimized in the Go language. Mm. But then I go back to Ruby and I look at the code and instead of thinking, wow, oh man, this is just so elegant. I think, oh my God, they're not handling anything here. Mm. There's an error here. There's an error here. There's an error here. These are all going to bubble up as exceptions. Like Mm -hmm. what if that's blank? What if that, you know? So there's a part of me that's realizing how little I actually checked for this stuff when I was doing Ruby. So now when I'm in Go and I'm looking at stuff like that, I feel secure. Hmm. And it helps like when you're writing the code and you're writing that if pattern, the linters will even tell you you did not handle an error that was returned here. So you can, as a return value, my question, it's like, yeah. hey, there's an error return value and you didn't assign it to something. Yep. There's a there's a Go linter called error check that will say that you didn't handle that. So it's not a know. it's not enforced by the language. No, but, but sort of culturally, and there there are tools for it. And culturally, people are more aware of handling those errors. Yeah, yeah, and all in all, like. With good design patterns, you can avoid that sort of situation uh, most of the time. And it's the same sort of thing in Ruby where like... You can avoid what situation? uh, Having a really, really long list of error handling. Okay. Because what'll happen is you'll wrap up the things that work together and return an error from that function as a whole. And Mm. so in my case, what that looks like is my equivalent of an action... And, and it's very similar to Rails, where the role of an action is to execute some business logic and translate the result of that business logic into HTTP and user interface type of stuff. So mm-hmm. that's, you know, skinny controller, right? Um, it's the same thing in my Go. I have, I want to keep skinny actions. I'd really ideally like to have one branch in an action that was like it worked or it didn't, you know? And sometimes there's another one. But if you have a whole bunch, like you're doing something wrong, mm-hmm. like you want to be organizing a little better. Mm-hmm. And then when you go into the business logic section of that, let's say we're like deleting a user, mm-hmm. right? The delete user function, that's just going to, its API is just going to be, who did you want me to delete? That as a parameter, and then whether it succeeded or not, or had an error, right? Mm-hmm. And in that case, you could have an error if that user didn't exist in the first place, or if the query went wrong, like the database wasn't available. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe the user's ID is malformed. But that's all like database logic. So that's going to be in the database function that actually does the delete. And you'll wrap it all up in an error that represents the successfulness of the delete. Mm-hmm. So as you abstract and layer, um, you kind of 
reduce the number of branches. And so it's the same way you jump into somebody's code and they've uh, in Ruby and they've got a hundred line controller. You just immediately are like, oh, okay, something's wrong here. Mm-hmm. You know, I bet we can clean this up. We can make this read a whole lot better. It's the same thing in Go. If you see someone with like a you know five deep branches, it's like, okay, well, I bet we can use some good design patterns here and clean this up. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. You you reminded me of a blog post I read by Jeffrey Grossenbach, which is something along the lines of like five things experienced programmers think about or know or something. And one of his points that I thought was dead on was that you'll find that the more experienced a programmer is, the more they think about the unhappy paths. Yeah. And the, it's, he's like, you know, in most it, that's that's weird. Like in most fields, you might not find that. Like why why are these why are programmers that know that have done this for a while kind of obsessed with the ways that things can fail? Yeah, it I mean feels maybe dark. maybe civil engineering. Yeah, sure. Um, or, but, like, uh, or like maybe medicine surgery. Yeah, I guess med- it's good medicine. to know how you can screw up. There you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, yeah, and and I think that's that's really right on. And when I came to Go, it was almost like oh, this language understands me. It's obsessed with the error paths, mm, right? Mm-hmm. And Ruby is obsessed with like. The happy paths, I yeah. think. And then it's sort of like, well, you know, if stuff really happens, we raise exceptions, you know, and then we catch them when we care. But that means there's this sort of, we're not really aware of the exceptions that we have. We don't have the the idea of like raises, you know, or, or throws like in, in Java, mm. you know. So it's not really clear from the API what may or may not raise something. We sort of leave it to documentation. Yeah. And we always just sort of say, you know, Rails controller, just catch it at the very top in 500 and let me know. Mm-hmm. And we just sort of wing it, right? Yep. Um, and then we go back after ourselves and we patch up, you know? Mm-hmm. And I've certainly done that and it's very efficient and you get to where you want to be really quickly. But then you always find yourself just cleaning and cleaning and cleaning and cleaning at this sort of long tail of cleaning up after yourself. That's true. Yeah, it's efficient in the hap- to get to the half path done. Yeah, yeah. So I feel like the work I've been doing in Go is a lot more robust, you know? It is, has been interesting to talk to other like Haskell people, for example, mm-hmm. about because Haskell takes the basically the opposite approach. It's not like there's no it's not the short happy path. It's like you got to handle you got to handle it. Period. Or like you can't compile. I won't even run this code. Yeah, that's what I've heard. Is I don't know Haskell that well, but what I've heard is like if it compiles, it's correct. So yeah, you know? I, I spent uh, last week writing Elm, uh, and I'm an Elm newbie, but I I did get some exposure to it, and I had that experience, which is like. Change a thing, compiler complains in certain ways, you fix the compiler problems, it recompiles okay, and then you go to the browser and it's like, oh, yeah, that, that does work. And there is a security that comes from that that feels really good. And Ruby is like really nice about the like, it's amazing how fast you can just get to like happy path works because you don't have to handle anything. But you could basically look at every, almost, you could probably look at most lines of Ruby code and be like, what if this returns nil? What if this raises? What if we're out of disk space? What if we're out of memory? Mm-hmm. Like this, I think this, you could just, I saw some tweet about a code review technique for Ruby PRs. It's just like, just just comment on any random line and say, what if this is nil? <laughs> but like you just, you like Haskell and um, Elm and things like that, just you, you don't have that. Or, like, or that it's like, if this thing can be nil, you got to put it in the type and then you can't not handle what to do when it's nil. Yeah, and Go is that way too with mm-hmm. pointers. Okay. Um, yeah, it doesn't tell you that you have to check for nil, and that is the most common area in Go that you will get panics, mm-hmm. um, which are really horribly, terribly bad, like way worse than exceptions, mm. um, because it'll crash out the whole server. And mm. so you do have to check for your nils, but it's like you have to dereference a pointer if you want to use it. And so if you dereference without checking for nil, that's just like a really, really basic thing that you you really have to do, mm-hmm. you know? And so the nil check is like, if you just dereference and you didn't check for nil, like that's where the bug is. So it's very visible 
in that sense. Hmm. That's interesting. The other thing, you know, while we're while we're talking about the error paths and, and Ruby, and what I'm about to say, if you know me, you'll realize this is a massive departure from my philosophy Good. of working in Rails. I like which is that coming to Go, my test coverage of error conditions has dropped substantially. Hmm. The last company that I started, I built the application in Rails, and it had 100% test coverage through its entire lifetime, right? Because I didn't want anything to go wrong. And so that's like, that's extreme, you know, it's, and it's kind of crazy. In Go, I stopped covering all the error paths. I, I would handle the error situation at the user level. Like, what does the user see when it goes wrong? Because to me, that's a feature. That's not like actually a, a like a crashing condition. Mm. But then below the surface, everywhere that something's like, oh, if this is nil, return this error. If this was invalid, return this error, whatever. It was kind of like Haskell where that code is so simple that if it compiles, it works. And the error checking and handling logic was really just like a bubble anyways. Mm -hmm. And so I could avoid uh, covering that. Whereas in Ruby, like you could be raising an exception, like an exception class that you never defined. And that'll that'll run, you know, and then you'll get a like this exception has, was never defined. So mm -hmm. it's almost like I took the TDDing that I was doing with Ruby and made it like TDD and go, but the first pass is the compiler. And there's some things that I let the compiler be the one to say, this is fine. Yeah. And I don't need a test for it. Yep. And that was actually kind of nice to be able to do. Because in sure. Ruby, it was like, there could literally be, you know, I guess not a syntax error, but like there could be like a, a signature error or a, or a type error that I need to make sure that this error condition is, is covered, mm -hmm. you know, but Go's compiler bails me out there. And then I don't have to write a test for that. And sometimes... I find setting up for bizarre error conditions to be the hardest tests to write and maintain because mm -hmm. you have to really get in there in a weird way. It's like, how do I even handle when the browser randomly disconnects because it lost internet connectivity without a close? Mm -hmm. Like, how do I how do I test that? You know, that's, mm -hmm. that's tricky, yeah. right? So it's nice to be able to leave a lot of that stuff to the compiler. Totally. I tweeted about this, but I think that's basically the future is leaving more things to the compiler or something kind of like a compiler that, that's smart. It's like static analysis. Yeah, static analysis or just a higher level approach to testing. Like I've been playing with Clojure spec library, uh, which is this really excellent way of just talking about what kind of things this function is going to take, what kind of output it's going to return, the relationship between the input and the output, like an invariant, and it will do generative testing for you. So it's like this, I, th I feel like this idea of like make a function, poke at it in these certain specific ways. I know what the return values are going to be. They're this. Make sure that this equals that that feels like a dead end to me. It's like, it's tedious, it's boring, it's error prone, it takes a lot of time, it's a maintenance problem, and computers are way better at that sort of thing if we just just can figure out the ways to tell them that sort of thing. So something like Clojure Spec or you know a, an awesome type system like you see Haskell and Elm and things like that. Like I, I wrote a fairly complicated Elm program last week and didn't write any tests and basically was fine with it. And there were a couple of times where it was like, oh, yes, okay, this thing says it's returning a string, and it is, but it's the wrong string. So yep. sometimes it, doesn't, like, it didn't have enough information to catch certain problems with the type system. But overall, I didn't feel that lack of security I would feel if I had written a fairly complicated Ruby program and didn't have any tests. I was like, does this still work? I have no idea. I have to run it. Instead, it was like, does this still work? Let me compile. It compiles in like a tenth of a second, and it says, yes, it still works, basically. Yeah, yeah, and that's, that's definitely the dream because like, what the computer is good at and bad at 
is the inverse of what the human is good at and bad at. And so, like, the human's really good at being like, okay, well, you know, when you multiply something by two, it should it should be doubled up. Like, all right, if this function that I'm going to do is supposed to generate these kinds of strings, I want to make sure that right string comes out. But the human's not really good at spotting a comma, mm. you know, mm-hmm. or um, making sure that this this type is exactly a subclass of this other type. But the computer's really good at that. So that's why I like the idea of test-driven development because the computer kind of goes through the paths and tells me, you know, what's not working right now. And then going to compiler-driven for these cases is also really nice because the computer's just like, oh, you didn't implement that yet. Mm-hmm. Because the way I develop really changed because now I'll write like, this is the code I wish worked. I'll write that. And then I'll be like, okay, computer, run that code. And it'll be like, well, you didn't define any of this. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, all right, let's take it step by step. What 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 do I need to define? You need mm-hmm. to find this other sub method. Okay, I can write that one. Mm-hmm. You know, you need to set up this constant. Well, I guess that should be about five seconds. You mm-hmm. know, and and the computer drives you through all the little nitty gritty details of yep. what your dream implementation needs to succeed. And I think you're right on that. Like having the computer just do more and more of that, more of that guidance is going to be a big burden lifted from the, the programmer, and yeah. then the programmer can focus on making decisions on behavior. Yeah. How can that not be the future? Like, how how could you bet against the idea that we're going to have computers to help us be, write correct programs as opposed to we're just going to get better at writing correct programs or, like, we're going to get tools that are slightly better at helping us write those correct programs? It, it just feels like that's the only way forward in my mind. You can't make sm- smarter brains, so we have to offload. Like, if we want to write more ambitious programs, we have to find ways of offloading some of that complexity. Yeah, and, and we have been in the history of computing. Every new language that comes along mm-hmm. uh, will add a new layer of abstraction to the area that people or the authors feel like were the difficult parts. Mm-hmm. So, like, with Go, the new layer was concurrency. Um, and I was just doing some work recently in Ruby where I had to do a lot of thread safety, fork safety, concurrency stuff, uh, found the wonderful Ruby concurrency gem, which just takes the concurrency patterns that other new languages have created Mm. and creates those in Ruby as a library. And I was like, oh, this is great. Now I can just keep talking about, you know, channels and CSP, but I'm just going to write it in Ruby, you Mm -hmm. know? And so I think that we're doing that. Every time there's a new language, uh, new frameworks, we're adding these layers on top. And you mentioned tooling, which I think is is really what makes Go shine. The language itself is actually incredibly boring. Um, and I think that that's an asset, but it doesn't mean it's not boring. But it's the tools that came with Go that really make Go wonderful. And it's those sorts of things that I miss uh, in other languages, but not you know some of the cool languages you've mentioned, like um, you know Haskell and Elm's tooling sound like they really help you write great programs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I had an experience that I think is kind of like one of those quintess this is a, a story i've heard from people writing haskell for example that I, and i finally had this sort of experience myself which was i had written this elm program the program was uh, a tool for kind of random walking its way to an image so i would uh, upload a goal image and say i want to generate this image and i'd start off by just throwing down a hundred random polygons onto a canvas and it'd be like okay that's like five percent like the goal image it'd be like okay mutate a couple of polygons is it closer yes okay if it is then keep that and mutate the next one. Otherwise, you know, try again. And so I think hill climbing is kind of the, the name for that algorithm. We're sort of just searching randomly for things that are better. And if we get there, then that's our new starting point. And I started off by, uh, because it was easiest, I started off with circles, actually, instead of polygons. Because like, I don't want to keep track of vertices and think about that. So I'm just going to use circles. And so the core type that showed up all over the program was circle. 
Uh, and after a while, I got it working. And I was like, okay, I think circles actually kind of are not good for this. I think we'll get better results with polygons. And so I decided to change that. And I was like, okay, well, this is going to be a huge pain and probably gonna take a lot of time, but I think it's worth doing. And so I like at the sort of top level declaration was like, okay, now this thing is a polygon. And Elm says, you know, the compiler immediately comes up with like seven things. It's like, these are all broken now. And I completely mechanically walked my way through that list, making easy changes in every case. And then it compiled. And I was like, that can't be, that's not like, I'm not done, right? Like what's broken? And I reloaded it and it just worked. Yep. And it was like, I have seen the future. <laughs> yep, absolutely. The poking the program is, uh, is the part that I want to see less and less and less of, mm -hmm. you know? Because it really feels like I'm just pushing and prodding it around, but really, yeah, it should figure itself out. Yeah, I was left with the sense of like, I must have forgotten something. Like you just, I never had that experience in Ruby where like, I mean, every, I mean, I do TDD, but even so, like if you make, there's just, I don't know, sometimes I'll make changes in like the test pass, but it's still broken. Yeah, it's it's literally like a meme. It's like when the test passed the first time, you know, suspicious look sort of thing, right? Yeah. Like you just don't, there's not a lot of trust. I think that's the root of it is mm -hmm. how much we trust our language, yeah. you know? And I think as we go forward with newer, more, trustable languages that we're going to gain a lot there. Mm -hmm. Even doing fairly disciplined TDD, it's still on you to catch everything. Yeah. Like that's, and that's, the, that's hard. And so you think you've been thorough and caught all the things that could happen, but even so, you might have a situation where the test pass is broken. Mm -hmm. And I just kept not having that, rarely having that thing with Elm. It was like I could do pretty aggressive refactorings, and once it re did recompile, it was like, yeah, you actually did catch everything. I kept having to kind of be like, really? Can I really trust this? And it just kept working, and it was kind of mind-blowing. Yep. It's pretty amazing. Mm -hmm. How long does your test suite take to run, by the way? So if I'm just running the tests, mm -hmm. um, I believe it's two seconds. Mm-hmm. And those are acceptance tests, so that's HTTP interaction. Nice. If I'm running all of the linters and I'm running race condition checking, which Go has built in, and I'm doing code coverage, mm -hmm. and I'm also rebuilding all of my templates, then it's like six seconds. Um, but usually I use the unit level loop that's, that's two seconds to, to rerun a test. Mm -hmm. It's pretty awesome. Form keep, which I spend most of my time working on, is 10 seconds for the whole suite. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just, it's so nice to work with that kind of speed of feedback. Yeah, it's absolutely. Just, it's so and pleasant. Is that uh, acceptance or is that mostly that's unit? That's everything. That's unit tests and acceptance Yeah, tests. but like what's the proportion of your suite? Oh, um, that's a good question. I'm not sure. I don't know. Like, I mean, when I'm working on a particular method, I'm running just a, a couple tests and that's mm -hmm. effectively instant, instant enough for me. So I'm not sure. Yeah. Like my, my feedback loop as I'm doing code is like I'm, I'm in my editor. I hit a keystroke. I get the test feedback right there. Yeah, no, I'm sorry. I meant um, I meant like... How much of the tests there are at the HTTP like Capybara level uh -huh. versus how many of them are at the Ruby unit spec level? Right? I'm not sure. Yeah, because I, I, I know that was like, down. that's been like a, that's definitely a point in Ruby. There's people on all ends of that spectrum where it's uh -huh. like, okay, everything should be mocked. It's all going to be unit tests. Everything's super fast. And then others who are like, if you don't actually drive the browser on it, you don't really know if it worked or not. Mm -hmm. So I'm seeing if I have. Just curious. I'm seeing what Rake Stats says here. Um <laughs> It doesn't break out the acceptance tests. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly. Yeah, but I, yeah. I try to not write a ton of acceptance tests. I'd rather run lower level tests because mm -hmm. they're faster and more direct in feedback. 
And so I have things to make sure, like I actually do click around the, the UI and you know, you can sign up and you can pay and you can cancel and all these things that mm -hmm. the things that are really important get driven from you a browser. Still have to poke it. Yeah, yeah. still poke the, still, yeah, for sure, still poke it. Because I find that without that, I don't have enough confidence. Yeah, in uh, for Meetspace, I would say at least 80% of the tests are at the acceptance level, at mm -hmm. HTTP level. Mm -hmm. Because one of the nice things in Go's HTTP package is they actually have an HTTP test server which kind of like Capybara, it can take an app, a handler, like taking a rack app equivalent, and spin it up on a random port and say, hey, it's available here. And then in my test suite, I have a test server object. It encapsulates my app, an HTTP test server, the database, a mocked out mailer so I can catch my emails and check them out. Mm -hmm. And so what I can do in my tests is I just say, okay, spin me up a server, you know, visit this page, you know, do that, do this. So it's kind of like having that Capybara level. And because I feel like Go is doing a good job at the little things in the compiler checks and the type checks and the unit level, mm -hmm. I feel like as a developer, I'm really just testing at the user level. And so I feel like that has got me a really nice bang for the buck in terms of my test suite. Mm -hmm. um, and it also frees me up to refactor everything and have my tests still pass, which is kind of nice. Except yeah. for, and then the compiler checks sort of guide me through my refactor. And then if my tests pass, then I'm like, okay, I'm still good. You know, everyone can still pay and log in and mm -hmm. all that good stuff. Yep. So. Nice. It feels to me like the world is moving forward in this way, where we are offloading more of these tasks to computers. And so I'm, I'm glad. It's like if we got stuck, that to me just is like, that's a disaster. And so it's like if Ruby and Rails are the best we ever could do, then we've screwed up. Like we got to keep pushing forward and trying new things and finding better ways. Yes, especially if you're thinking about scalability of labor. Because right now, there's still just not enough programmers, right? Mm -hmm. And if we don't keep increasing our tools to be able to do more, like that's just going to get worse. Right? Yeah. Well, and in software... We're sort of limited only by how much we can get in our head, how much, how well we can manage complexity, and because we can, if we want to write more ambitious programs with fewer people, which we do and we should, uh, we need better tools. Yep. Yeah. Then that's. I mean, that's why we have abstraction is because it's like I don't know what the fact is on short term memory. It's something like you can hold eight to ten objects in your head, like mm -hmm. twelve if you're really good. Mm -hmm. You know, I know I'm terrible. I'm probably like a six, and so maybe that's why I love abstraction so much, mm -hmm. right? Um, but yeah, that's that's absolutely. Absolutely true that we're not going to be able to work on bigger and crazier programs until we can make them look like simple ones. Mm -hmm. You had mentioned earlier to me that you were doing some interesting things with your GUIDs in your test slash development environment. Like you don't do a oh, test, you don't do like a database cleaner. Yeah, this is really fun because honestly, this was just such a struggle through my entire Rails career was like transaction isolation or database cleaner in Ruby test suites. And going way back to like 2010, I was doing a lot of crazy stuff, parallelizing Ruby test suites to ridiculous levels mm -hmm. and trying to get them to run, you know, really, really fast. And one of the big barriers there was always trying to get transaction isolation to work when you're parallelizing. And especially when you're doing Capybara and you have a browser hitting a server and they're no longer all in the same thread holding the same database connection so you can't use transaction isolation anymore. So you end up using something like Database Cleaner which has to go back and clean up your database. But if you're using things like factories or you're using fixtures or just you know factory methods in general and you're doing them in threads, the pseudo-randomness will cause collisions in your database when you've got you know incrementing ID numbers and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And even if you solve all of that, you still have those kinds of tests that are like, 
when I invite six users to my team, then my team should have seven users total, mm -hmm. you know, and you're counting like that. And so there's still that scoping problem where you're using that same one team because the team's not the object under test. So you only want to look at the users. So you want to use that shared team. And there's always all these collisions. And so what I decided to do from the very start with Meetspace was use uh, UUIDs in the database. Um, it's better than auto-incrementing IDs anyways. And the idea there was that I can just randomly generate them and I don't have to worry as much about collisions. So when it came to writing my tests, I didn't notice it. I just wrote my test that was like, okay, I'm going to make a user, you know, somebody's going to sign up, they're going to make a team in Meetspace, they're going to invite some people, everybody should be there, whatever. And it was like a couple of days went by and I was like, wait a minute, I never wrote isolation. Mm. I don't have a transaction wrapper for my tests. Like, how are they passing? Mm. And it was because everything was scoped. Like, at the beginning of my test, I signed somebody up. They have their own world. When you're on Meetspace, you can't interact with other people's data. You know, it doesn't make sense because it's a product for a team. Mm -hmm. So next thing I knew, I didn't, I didn't have this. And I looked at my database. I had like a million records. And I was like, that's from running my test suite over and over and over again. I never cleaned up after myself. And hmm. it's not a problem. This is wonderful, hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. And so I just didn't have to deal with it, hmm. you know. And it was almost like that's one of those wins that you get when you discard a lot of the baggage that comes along with previous frameworks and solutions and things. So this was one of the areas that I felt like I got a win out of not using, you know, a testing framework or a database ORM framework or a uh, web framework. Wouldn't you have had the same win if you were just disciplined about scoping things in other languages, frameworks, things like that? Yeah, except they don't guide you that way. Mm. And so the way that the framework, like Rails guides you towards auto-incrementing numeric IDs because of historical reasons. Mm. Because for a long time, they supported UUIDs very poorly. I, I'm actually not sure where their UUID support is right now. I remember they used to have issues with it, but that was also years ago. So mm. it may very well be in a good place right now, mm. and it may support it just fine. But that is not the way that the scaffolds generate your migrations, right? Mm -hmm. It's because there's this legacy that goes with it, mm -hmm. right? And so when I started doing this stuff, there wasn't a legacy that was like, oh, okay, well, if I use the easy, if I take the easy way, like I I'm, see. I, it's going to tell me to use an auto-incrementing thing. That's fine. I'll do what everybody else does, save, continue. Okay, well, I guess everybody else does database cleaner too. You know? I see. And so the reason that that generates the issue is because it increments based on the last thing that's already in there. So like your test data interacts with future test data. Is that what you're getting at? Uh, like why yeah, does UIDs yeah, yeah. solve this and, and auto-incrementing IDs cause the problem? You'd probably be all right with the incrementing IDs if you also had really good isolation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you're not going to have races at the database level. So you're probably okay in that respect. Is it more the discipline of like not being like user.last.team and instead like find yep. the, the, the user I just created and check their team? Yeah, and, and also if you, um, depending on how you consider your uniqueness, because like if you're using fixtures in Rails, then you're going to get deterministic IDs as a feature. Hmm. And that's how fixtures look up uh, the fixture object. And so that'll break when you try to do things in parallel hmm. um, or without cleanup mm -hmm. across tests. Mm -hmm. If you're using a factory pattern, the way that a lot of the factories tend to work is you say like, okay, well, this, this factory, it's not based on the ID because we want those to increment. It'll be based on the user's email, you know, or... Like, if you've got it really lined up well, then it's like, okay, I'll get the user back. It'll be pretty random, and then I can 
uh, it'll have like a randomized email address or something. So yes, if you're very disciplined, you get around these issues, right? But that's something that is going to come with a lot of experience. And so if you're just sort of taking this stuff from the very beginning, you're going to fall into the same traps until you find the path that everybody else has been walking for a while that involves a lot of different turns, mm. right? Mm -hmm. And if you're coming to it fresh, there just aren't any of those. Like I didn't have to, okay, I'm going to have to bring in like factories with randomness and this is the pattern that people do, you know, in Rails. Instead in Go, it was just like, well, I have nothing. So I might as well just make some random stuff, mm -hmm. you know? And I certainly couldn't have done that without the experience. But it was like, I now that I've walked that path in Rails, I can just take the end goal and bring it right up to the beginning, you know, and mm -hmm. not have to go down these different paths of, uh, okay, there's fixtures. I guess that's the way to do it. Okay, no, wait, there's there's Factory Girl. Let's use that. Oh, now I'm reading about people on Hacker News that say that Factory Girl isn't cool anymore. And, you know, now what should I do? And, you know, uh, no one's saying confusing. that, by the way. No, 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 it's the best. <laughs> Relatedly, it's interesting to me, having taught people programming a decent amount, how often I would say something like, they would be like, oh, I'm using this. I'm like, oh, don't use that. You don't want that. Mm -hmm. It's like how often there are language features in particular. And it's like, just, just stay away from that. Yes, I know you could do that. You don't want to do that. And I go back and forth on this. Like, I, I do like languages that are powerful, like default towards, yes, you can have a lot of power because that will let you do some good things if you use it responsibly. But also it's like we've given you an awesome foot shooter. So be careful. I feel like it's telling that with Ruby, there's a lot of times where I'm like, yeah, don't, I, I know that feels good or looks good or, you know, solve the problem kind of directly for you, but stay away from that. We don't use that. And there's, a, there's sort of like, I think a lot of languages develop this sort of thing, which is like the parts of the language that everyone agrees are bad, but are still there and still options. Mm -hmm. That feels kind of bad to me. Yeah. And so, I mean, and that's why new languages are appealing is it's that reboot. It's that rewrite yeah. where you could mm -hmm. avoid a bunch of that stuff. And then Ruby and, and Rails have a lot of legacy that go with them. But because of that, they also have all of this power behind them. I mean, Rails is incredibly powerful. Mm -hmm. If I had done Meatspace and Rails, it would have taken me half or maybe a third as long, mm -hmm. right? It would have been more efficient for me to get where I needed to be. But I think that having not done that, having gone with Go, having taken longer, written more things myself, I'm now in a better place. Hmm. So I, I had to pay it up front, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, they've, they've got their uses. I'm not, I would certainly use Rails again on projects where it made sense. Mm -hmm. And I think that there are plenty of projects where it makes sense. I'm not saying, you know, ditch it. I think it's, I think it's amazing. Mm -hmm. And in Meatspace's case, it was like, you know, Go makes sense because the core of what Meatspace needs to be is lightning fast, real-time communication. Yeah. And that's somewhere where Rails is just figuring out how to get going. Mm -hmm. You know, we just got Action Cable. I was working on TubeSock for Rails 4 that brought WebSockets in, but I, that never really... I like that name. Yeah, TubeSock. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It was like a little tube for your sockets. Yeah. And that was like, uh, that worked for Rails 4, but it was never really a production-ready thing. There's some people using it, but like, it's not big. And then... Now we have Action Cable, but you still have to have a backing store for that. Like you still have to have a PubSub channel to go behind Action Cable. It's not like that that's built into Rails. And if you're running more than one process, then, you know, you've got to coordinate in some way. Mm. And that's an area where like things like uh, Elixir are really shining mm -hmm. because it's got that distributed clustering built into it. So even if you're running many processes, they can all communicate and they have that back channel already. You don't need to use a backing store. So there's some really cool stuff going on there. And I feel like if I had known Elixir 
before starting Meatspace, then I probably would have ended up doing it mm. uh, in Elixir. But I didn't want to take that many risks all at once. Like mm-hmm. sometimes I had to be like, okay, you need to make like a couple safe decisions here. Yes. You can't go insane with all of these things at mm-hmm. the same time. Yeah. We actually have a philosophy, I guess I would say, of doing a project and not doing any experiment on it is bad. And doing a project and taking too many, doing too many experiments is also not so good. Like it's it's not zero and it's not five, but somewhere in there is probably a good amount. One. Yeah. Yeah. One big thing. Yeah. 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 And that comes from like, I've done some teaching. A long time ago, I taught Taekwondo, but after that I've taught software stuff. And so I've taught Rails and JavaScript. And one of the things that we were talking before about Jeff Casimir and how awesome he is, mm-hmm. uh, I used to work with him at Jumpstart Lab and now he's doing touring school. And one thing that he taught me is like, you only teach somebody one thing at a time. Mm. And that's because you're only really good at focusing and learning one thing at a time. So you want to have everything else in your comfort zone, except this one thing that you're going to do that's going to challenge you and be difficult and you're going to learn it. And Mm -hmm. once you've got a handle on that, you pick the next thing. Totally. And I kind of feel like I already stretched that a little thin with Meatspace because I'm learning a lot of other things outside of tech. So I don't feel like I did take those risks with Go because I already knew Go. Mm-hmm. So it was a bit of a challenge because, yeah, I'm writing all this framework stuff, but that's like that's like labor. I feel like I'm just shoveling when mm. I'm doing that, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and I don't have to worry too much about it because I know it's going to work out. It yeah. just might be difficult, and that's fine. But yeah. it wasn't going to potentially fail. Mm-hmm. That idea of teach one thing at a time, like that is so effective, and I'm surprised at how rare it is among teachers. Like I've had even really good instructors in various things. Like I'm learning squash right now. And the guy that I've been taking lessons from is great, but he also just gives me too many things. Mm-hmm. And so at the end of the lesson, I'm like, okay, if I could only do one drill and think about one thing while I'm playing, what would yeah. it be? And yeah. he's and it's, that has been so helpful for my development. Like he gives me the one drill and I do the one drill and I get better. And it's, but it's, it, it takes me from this like, okay, I, I just learned 12 interesting things. And if I could manage to do all those things at the same time, I would be substantially better, but I can't. I, the, the reality is like the, the focus thing is just... It does have to be a single thing. Yep. That comes back around to decisions I've made in Meatspace, like on the tech, but also on the business side, where I'm trying to outsource everything that I'm not going to be really good at, Mm -hmm. right? And so one of the things I outsource is I'm on Heroku, right? Because I've got like a year and a half in Docker experience, right? I'm not running it on Docker because I don't need to be doing that, you know? And then another example is uh, I use Shoebox for Meatspace. And that is an S3 store that lets me put my users' avatars over on S3 just from JavaScript in the browser. So I didn't mention that when I was talking about dependencies. Mm. And I do file storage, right? But I don't do it myself. I outsource it. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't even count that. I didn't think about it as a dependency because it's so off my mind. It's just like it just works. I just drop it into a page and it's and it's sending all that stuff away. And then on the business side of things, you know, I'm using Stripe, right? I'm using ProfitWell and that is like a analysis on my Stripe customer interactions. It tells me, you know, upgrades, downgrades, it helps me set goals. And then the thing I'm really looking to do better is uh, customer development. You know, and so I'm still trying to figure something out for that. But uh, what do you mean, customer development? I don't even know what I mean, but I guess what I'm talking about is communicating with everybody who's using Meatspace Mm. as they arrive, as they try it out, have questions, and then potentially convert into a customer. And then after that, talking to them, making sure that their needs are met, what they need, 
And I've just been brute forcing that because just like in tech, I believe in starting with the brute force path and then refactoring when you need to. Yep. And so I've been hand emailing people the entire time. So yesterday I just did a big feedback round. Everybody who who's signed up, you know, as part of this podcast probably heard from me yesterday. Mm. And there was one person who was like, they responded with like, I don't usually respond to these email blasts, but since I heard you talking about it, you mm. know, I wanted to give you some feedback. Nice. And it was like, you know, I, I hand wrote this, you know? Yes. Like I looked you up, I saw what company you were with, I hand wrote this email to you, you know? And so I'm doing that stuff by hand because I can still do it. And yesterday it started to get a little bit painful because it took me a while, Yeah. right? So that's where I'm like, okay, now it's time for maybe somebody else to do this and maybe they'll do it better too. Maybe they'll follow up at the right points for me, even though it might be a little less human. I don't know. And that's what I struggle with. Yeah. It's like, when do I want to be the guy that just email blasts and drip campaigns? Because right now I can be the guy that talks to everybody and knows everybody. Right. You know, um, I feel like I know all of my customers very well. And I feel like I have a pretty good idea of the people who are in the trial, you know, and who they are and what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And I really value that. Totally. And I know I can't do that forever. So I'm trying to find a way to do that. Right. Yeah. That thing of, I actually wrote this, I will often actually write in emails because I think people are so accustomed to the like automated faux personal outreach email. Yeah. Except you can write, I actually wrote this in a fake email. I'll add a line about like, that's like clearly, I'll do a little bit of research about the person basically. That's like clearly a human has looked into you and understands that like actually a person wrote this for real. Yeah. And, um, I feel like, you know, you could do that poorly, of course, because you could be like, I see you and your team at X Corporation have, you know, so it can still feel that way. But one of my favorite things to do because it shows the personal touch, but also because it's really honest in the way that I'm communicating and also because it tends to up reply rates is I will send one email to everybody that's on a particular team together and say, hey, you know, it's like, let's, you know, the people at ThoughtBot. Hey, everybody at ThoughtBot. Like, I'm Nick. It's nice to meet you. Uh, I'm running Meetspace here. I saw you all signed up yesterday and had a meeting. You know, how did it go? Right? And so talking to everybody like that as a group, you, first of all, like, everybody sort of feels like at least one person should reply. And then the person that replies is usually the right person to talk to about Mm. feedback, Mm -hmm. you know? And so you're kind of psychologically hacking all of that. But at the same time, I'm showing that I'm also invested because I really am and that they can reach out to me, you know? And so I think it's valuable for everybody and uh, also saves me from typing six emails. I just get to type one, you know, it's like a CC, but it's not the BCC blast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice. Uh, Well, we've been talking for a bit. I think that's a good place to to leave it. Yeah. But I think we did did well. We got some of that technical stuff in there and we got a little bit of the non-technical as well. Yeah. Cool. It's a a grab bag for whatever you're into. Yeah. Cool. Today's show was produced and edited by the Tom Before the Storm Obarski. If you'd like to access the show notes for this episode, you can go to giantrobots.fm slash 217. Thanks for listening.